John 13 is where we're at today, verse 31. We're looking at the upper room ministry of Jesus to the disciples. It's been a rough night for the disciples. Um, Jesus is just switching everything up on them, right? He's just flipping, you know, they've got a case of vertigo, you know, their equilibrium is all off because he turned the tables when he girded himself like a common servant and washed their feet. I mean, that was culturally like upside down to them when he taught them as I've done to you, uh, so you do to one another and to others. Uh, He has uh, told them that one of them in the mix would betray him and they wondered among themselves and were greatly concerned who that would be uh and so i mean have you ever been in a meeting like that you know you come together and and uh you know kind of you think it's just going to be this great celebration and a feast and like all of this news kind of comes out and you're like oh, oh you know and it just keeps piling upon you know oh, oh, oh you know and you kind of you know spit up in your mouth a little bit, whatever it was you just ate, you know, you're just kind of like, oh, okay, uh, no more news, no more news, and more news comes, all right, not only did he turn the tables upside down by serving them, not only did he tell them one of them was going to betray him, not only, he moves on by verse 31 of John chapter 13 to uh, tell them that he is going to be leaving them, okay, and there's more, okay, there's another thing that's going to be happening in a moment when he tells Peter that Peter is going to betray him and, uh, and, and deny him. And so uh, it's going to be a rough night. It kind of continues, but don't worry. Jesus comes with a great word of comfort. But let's go back to 1331 and we'll move into chapter 14, John chapter 1331. So when uh, Judas had gone out to betray Jesus, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I've loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So... He kind of uh, dropped some bad news. I'm going to be leaving you guys. Um, that, that was rough to hear. And then he just kind of hops into this new commandment. We talked about it about three weeks ago. This commandment that we love one another. And, uh, and then the, Peter doesn't want to hear that really. That's not what he's interested in right now. He kind of, Peter's going to say, wait, 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 wait. The love one another stuff. Like, hold on a second. What'd you say? Where are you going? And Simon Peter says to him in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. And so Peter was concerned about geography, uh, but Jesus is going to give an answer in chronology. Peter says in verse 37, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life. For your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you've denied me three times. So Peter didn't want to take no for an answer. He displayed, on the good sense, a genuine desire to always be where Jesus was. He had some intimation by verse 37 that death was threatening in wanting to follow Jesus, but We got to be careful. It's easy to harshly judge Peter. He's not speaking uh, out of anger so much as he's a little bit confused in his devotion. He, He walks in kind of this characteristic of disobedience that we see in Peter many times or a sense of impatience that we see in Peter throughout the Gospels. But he wants to follow Jesus now, not later. He's not so much interested in the new commandment as he is in this threatened departure of his master. But something that we do see in Peter that we can learn from and how not to behave was that he had this sense of self-reliance. Anybody out there find that in themselves, a sense of self-reliance? I mean, Peter, you know, Lord, I used to be called Pebble, but then you named me a rock. And then you're telling me that I'm, you know, 
I'm, I'm going to sink like a rock? You know, come on, Lord. Like, come, give me a little bit of a chance here. I'm Peter. I'm not like these other ones. I'm a special one. Remember, I'm like in the three, like Peter, James, and John, and I got to go on the Mount of Transfiguration, and, you know, in a little bit, you're going to take me into the inner prayer circle of the Garden of Gethsemane. Like, like they'll probably deny you. I get that. I mean, look at them, <laughs> you know. But, Lord, not me. I'm not like the other ones. Lord, you haven't heard my story. you got to hear me out. I'm a little bit special. And Jesus challenges Peter and says, really, Peter? No, in fact, you're not even going to last through the rest of this night before you deny me three times. Mark's gospel in chapter 14, Jesus tells the disciples, all of you will be made to stumble this night because of me. As it's written, they will strike the shepherd and all the sheep will be scattered. And then Peter says to him in Mark, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus says that. And eventually all of them say likewise, no, we won't deny you. None of us will deny you. And the interesting thing is, it was noted by one preacher that Peter affected all of the other disciples with his arrogant notions so that all of them said, we would never deny you. But by Mark chapter 14, verse 50, I quote, then they all forsook him and fled. All right. These guys, especially Peter in this, in this writing, he, he thought he knew better than Jesus. He thought he was stronger than Jesus said he was. But sadly, even the best intentions in a secure room after good food are less attractive in a darkened garden when a hostile mob is coming after you with sword and spear and torches. At this point in Peter's pilgrimage, his intentions and his self-assessment is just too big for his own strength. In Luke 22, 23, Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, not only to prison, but to death. The interesting thing is by the end of the chapter and by the end of the night, we're going to see who really is going to lay down their life for who. It's going to be Jesus who's going to be laying down his life for Peter. Now, Jesus did tell Peter now, right now where I'm going, you can't follow, but you will follow. Right now I'm going to die and you're not going to go with me, but one day you will follow, you will die. It's in John chapter 21 that Jesus prophesies over Peter the type of death that he will die as a martyr. Fox's book of martyrs tells us that Peter was imprisoned uh, and uh, along with uh, his wife. And they were, uh, they escaped. Uh, some disciples came and released Peter and they were running away when the Lord appeared to Peter and said, turn around and go back. This isn't the plan that I have for you. Go back. And so Peter went back and just submitted himself to the guards, uh, the Roman guards. And, uh, and as Peter was in prison, they took his wife out and crucified her first. And church history tells us that as Peter watched his wife crucified in front of him. He shouted out to her, remember Christ, remember Christ. And it wasn't long after that then Peter was crucified and history tells us that he was crucified. Uh, and as they were crucifying him, he said, I'm not worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord. And so they took him and they flipped him upside down. And they crucified him upside down. And he said, as he embraced the cross, oh, how I've longed to go and join my savior. And the physicians who were there and observed the death said that Peter's entrails came out of his mouth as he hung upside down on that cross. And so Peter would eventually experience the excruciating pain of the crucifixion. It just wasn't right then. As Clark said, Christ must first die for Peter before Peter could die for him. And in 2 Peter, later on in Peter's life, 2 Peter 1.14, Peter wrote, I know that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. 
That evening, before the bell rings for dinner, or before the second bell rings for dinner, or before the clock strikes midnight, or before the rooster crows three times, these were all the like time frames within an evening in that day, to Peter, a servant girl's tongue was sharper than an executioner's sword. The rooster crow would be the ringing bell to wake Peter's conscience. The denial would end up being burnt in Peter's memory. When Peter would preach in Acts 3, he would charge the Jews that they were denying Jesus. That meant something to him. Later on in Peter's life, in 2 Peter 2.1, he wrote of dangerous men who deny the Lord. And why would he write about denying and why would he preach against denying the Lord? Because he knew it better than anyone. He knew that he needed forgiveness for that. He needed redemption from that. And that moves us into chapter 14. Believe it or not, it all flows together. It's all in the same discussion. It's all in the same night. It's all in the same ministry of of the Lord in the upper room discourse as we get into chapter 14. Chapter 14, a beloved chapter, one of the most famous passages of Jesus in his um, in his speaking. James Barris uh, was the man who wrote Peter Pan, among many other works. And he wrote another work that was about his mother. His mother's name was... Uh, Well, I lost it in my notes here. Margaret Ogilvie, a Scottish woman. And according to Morrison, his mom went through just a great affliction in her life, including the tragic loss of one of her children. And he would write about his mom that John chapter 14 was her favorite chapter in the Bible. She read it so much that when her Bible was open and set down, the pages naturally fell open to this place. John Barry said that when he, she was old and could no longer read these words, she would stoop down to her Bible and kiss the page where the words were printed. What are these words that she loved so much? Let's check them out. John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. So for Margaret Ogilvie who had so much pain and anguish in her life, she found these opening words, let not your heart be troubled, to be comforting to her, just as the disciples did in the day they were written, in the day they were spoken. Again, just in this evening alone, they had their feet washed by their master. They were warned of a traitor in their midst. Peter was shot down as he proclaimed his loyalty to Jesus. They just found out Jesus is leaving them. These guys are having a hard evening that is beginning to shake them. There's shame, there's sadness, there's perplexity, there's fear, and it's all beginning to plague them. One man wrote, his disciples felt his departure like a torture. And it was then that he consoled them with such simple and glorious speech that all of Christendom is a debtor to their agony. Are you going through a hard time today? You got rough stuff that's just causing waves in your life and you think that ship might sink? Then just embrace this passage this morning. Are you a Peter right now that you, you've already put your foot in your mouth a few times today or in this season and just there's just catastrophe and your failure and you've just made a wreck of things and you look back behind you and there's just a wake of destruction in your life that looks like a tornado went through a trailer park. You're in a good place today. We're in the age of grace. We're in a day where the Lord is coming and he's speaking to us through his word and the same words he spoke to his disciples. And he's speaking these words to the very ones who would deny him before the night is over. An old hymn says, was there ever so kind a shepherd? Half so gentle, half so sweet as the savior who would bid us come and gather around his feet. On the brink of catastrophic failure, Jesus says to them, don't let your heart be troubled. 
Don't be disturbed. Don't let your heart cause a riot. Don't be stirred up right now. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Maybe you have the NIV translation today. It says, trust in God. Trust also in me. I think Johnny taught uh, two weeks ago from the book of James. And he mentioned what James says. You believe in God. Good for you. Even the demons believe in God and they tremble. Nothing special about just believing that there's a God out there. And the whole point of James is that, oh, you need to surrender your life to that God. You need to know that God. And we're knowing that God through the book of John in the person of Jesus Christ. As Jesus distinguishes that he and God are not the same person, him and the Father... There's distinction within the Trinity. The Father's not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's not the Son. The Spirit's not the Father. And it goes on and on. You know your exponents, right? But they are one in the Godhead, one deity, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You believe in God. You do well. Who's Jesus to you? Who do you say that Jesus is? The disciples were asked that question. And Peter said, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the savior of the world. You're the anointed one. You believe in God. Awesome. Believe also in me. Those things are synonymous. Believing in God. Believing in Jesus. That is proper doctrine. And you've spent your life here in Primeville trusting in God. And so often I, I get out there in the world. I don't just spend time in the four you know, corners of an office down at the church building all week long. I am out among sinners. I'm sharing Jesus with people. I'm talking to people about the Lord. And so many people, they know there's a God. Just the other day, moving cows at 9 a.m. or 6 a.m. With a guy with a Coors Light in his lap, 6 a.m. Oh, if I have a water this early, it's going to poison me. I'm like, I'm not sure that's what's poisoning you, okay? You know? And as he's talking, he, he, we get to talk, and I'm with some other cowboys that love Jesus, and we're talking to this guy, and he's just, he's interested in what is going on around here. But he just kind of, you know, he just kind of soft pedals and says, you know, I believe in the, I got nothing against the man upstairs. I got nothing against him. Well, that's nice, you know? And the more we have these conversations out in the world, don't you just hear that? Like, well, the good Lord, blue, 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 blue. And it's like, you have no idea who Jesus is, do you? You trust in God? Let's kick it up another notch, right? Who is Jesus to you? Another guy came by a couple years ago, came by the church and uh, needed, needed some money for gas in his truck. Had a great business, was cash poor, and just said, I just need money to get to my construction site. And I was like, well, all right then. We went and gave him gas and just sat in his truck with him. And as we're sitting there, he's talking about just all the different ways that he's trying to be like a righteous person. And I just asked him, who's Jesus to you? And he goes, who's Jesus to me? I'm like, yeah, like, what is Jesus to you? What has he done for you? What, do you, what have you placed your hope in? And he's just like, I've never thought of that before. It's just crazy because as time goes on, this guy is still in my life. Be praying for this guy. You don't need to know his name, but the Lord is working in him here in this town. And the question is, who is Jesus to you? You believe in God. You've got some level of spirituality. That ain't going to cut it. Who's Jesus to you? You believe in God. Believe also in me. You've trusted in God in your life. Have you not? We had a soup kitchen in this church for like six years. We ran a soup kitchen in this town. And I would talk to people and they would try, well, I know there's a God. I've seen him do stuff. It's like, oh, you trust in God. Yeah, I trust in God. But Jesus is like a foreign figure to them. And Jesus says, you've seen God's faithfulness. Move that to me and what I'm doing to secure your salvation. Trust in me. Do you have a troubled heart this morning? Here is the cure for a troubled heart. You got a troubled heart. Man, I go, I go from like morning to morning having a troubled heart or not having a troubled heart. I'll just wake up with, you know, I got the 
okay? And then by like 11 a.m., I'm like, will it ever end? <laughs> like down at the church holding this pulpit above the mantle, and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, hanging up my pulpit. It's over, you know? And then by like 6 p.m., I'm like, isn't God faithful? So faithful, you know? This is the cure for a troubled heart, not getting your eyes off of Jesus. This is all of Christianity. This is all of Christendom. Trusting the Lord. This is all from Genesis through Revelation. What happened in the Garden of Eden when they're cruising in the garden in the morning, you know? Not a care in the world and not anything on their body, you know? And they're hanging out there. And in a moment, they get their eyes off of the Lord. They stop trusting the Lord. And all of humanity was plunged into depravity. Jesus' solution to perplexity is not a recipe, it's a relationship with him. Cast your cares on him. Lay all of your burdens down at his feet. That was a song in the salty singing songbooks when I was a kid. Do you guys know that song? I cast all my cares upon you. It's a good one. I start crying when I sing it. I lay all of my burdens down at your feet. And any time I don't know what to do, I will cast all my cares upon you. You don't know what to do? Cast your cares upon him. And it's Peter that tells us to do that. And in the language, it speaks to hurl your burdens on him or roll your burdens on him. His cares now become your cares because he cares for you. More than a platitude, more than empty words. One old hymn says, put your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the water. Who am I kidding? That's not an old hymn. That's a rap. Modern day. Put your hand in the hand of the man. Okay. And it goes on. Put your hand in the hand of the man who calmed the sea. And so what hope do we have in trusting in the Lord? Well, he has got eternity in mind. He's got your future in mind. Look at verse two. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house at his property at his dwelling place there's lots of rooms there's lots of abodes it's funny you know i grew up on on a pretty big ranch and but in a small farmhouse and we used to go visit my cousins visiting today he lived in lake oswego and we used to go visit their family's home in lake oswego and to us their home was a mansion okay And we used to call it the mansion. You know, I don't know if you ever knew that, but. And uh, it had a pool and a sauna and a ping pong table, you know, and a Nintendo, you know. And so when I was young and I would read this, I'm like, in heaven, there's a whole bunch of my cousin Kyle's houses. You know, lots of long hallways and secret hiding places. You know, oh, yeah, it's going to be best, the best, right? And it's interesting as you read this because you're like, in my father's house are many big houses? How does that work, right? It's a little bit confusing. Uh, if you have the ESV or the NIV, in my father's house are many rooms or literal translation, honeymoon suites. Okay, maybe not the honeymoon part, but suites, okay? In my father's house are many suites or the NASB translates it, dwelling places the authorized version takes it that to that deep large level of entire mansions with this idea that the reader would know that we are going to have plenty of space for all the people we can bring with us all right so in my father's house plenty of room okay um One place we read about this um, house with mansions inside the house, okay, is in Revelation 21. If you want to flip there, you can. I'll just read it to you. Basically, it's a Home Depot cut list, okay? Or, sorry, Par Lumber. Man, just showed my allegiances to a whole bunch of people. Any Par Lumber guys here today? Terry Rory. Okay. Sorry, okay? Just kidding. Par's my, par's my jam. Okay. 
And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city. It's a gold-plated fat max, okay? Its gates and its wall. So he's going to measure the new Jerusalem, this big city, okay? And the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed. 12,000 furlongs, its length, its breadth, its height are equal. Okay, so John the Revelator sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, decorated like a bride adorned for her groom. And he's given this tape measure. And what everybody wants to do, go measure a city. You know, so he does it. Measures this city out. Discovers it in furlongs. That might not mean much to you. Um, So a furlong is an eighth of a mile. So 12,000 furlongs is 1,500 miles. Okay, so its length and its uh, breadth and its height are all 12,000 furlongs or 1,500 miles. I'm going to read you a few just fun writings on how big the New Jerusalem is. This is the New Jerusalem. It's our heavenly home, and it's kind of like our heavenly city home. It's like our vacation spot, okay? It's, it's the place in uh, the future heaven where everyone kind of comes for those special times to worship the Lord. These special, like, almost festival times, all right? The New Jerusalem is enormous. 12,000 furlongs equals 1,500 miles. Uh, uh, 1,500 miles. This is the same distance from Maine to Florida, Okay? The square footage would be approximately the size of the moon, okay? Leon Morris said, a city of this size is too large for the imagination to take in. John is certainly conveying the idea of splendor, and more importantly, that there's room for all. What's more, the New Jerusalem is 3.375 trillion miles cubed, Okay, The earth itself has only 49 million habitable square miles. Okay, Now, I've read these numbers, and then I've checked them on my own calculator a couple times. So it's got to be right, okay? Shannon, don't get your calculator out. We don't want to hear it, okay? Just trust me. No, I'm kidding. All right, listen to what uh, Sandy Adams uh, from Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain, Georgia says. If the upper right-hand corner sat in Boston, then the other three corners would land in Miami, Phoenix, and Calgary, Canada. The city would cover about three-quarters of the area of the United States. This is a city two and a quarter million square miles, but the most mind-boggling dimensions is its height. It's also 1,500 miles high. Consider that today the Earth's atmosphere extends only 600 miles. That means if it sat down on the Earth today, the New Jerusalem would extend 900 miles into outer space. More of it would be above the atmosphere than below it. The size of the New Jerusalem would be just a little smaller than the moon. Imagine, too, a city with 3D living space. Its inhabitants live not just at the base, but throughout the structure. This increases its living area to 3 billion square miles, more than enough for all the saved throughout all the ages. And Dr. Henry Morris from the Creation Research Institute says, having done the math, concluding the given possibility that there would have been 100 billion people in the human race throughout history and that 20% of them would become Christians and be saved, of 20 billion residents, each person would enjoy a block of space of approximately one cubic mile, or its length, breadth, and height would be a little over a third of a mile in each direction, 75 acres on each. This is highly speculative, but illustrates the point that there's plenty of room in the New Jerusalem. Tim LaHaye, the author of the Left Behind series, says, Can you imagine the view from your apartment house overlooking the holy city and extending as far as the eye can see from an elevation of 1,500 miles? 
Like Rory Wagan and all that. This is kind of silly and kind of dumb, and I'm not 100% sure the math was right on that. Hey! <laughs> okay. If Jesus took the time to say, it's going to be big, then we ought to know there's room for us. There's room for you. And there's room for the lost to come and be saved. Jesus says, if it were not so, I would have told you. If it were not so, I would have told you. What do you think? I'm going to stand up here and lie to you and tell you an untruth? I like that modern version of this translation in the James uh, Jameson Phillips translation. You must not let yourselves be distressed. You must hold on to your faith in God and to your faith in me. There are many rooms in my father's house. If there were not, should I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And so Jesus is going to prepare a place. And, and we often think of that as, oh, that, you know, when he ascended up into heaven and now what's he been doing for the last 2000 years, you know, and like, oh, it's going to be good. You know, he's been taking 2000 years to prepare that place for us. And that's not wrong. But you know, like the immediate context of how Jesus was going to be preparing a place for us. It wasn't with hammer and nails in the sense that you think. It was through the hammer and nails of a cross. And through a grave that he would within three days resurrect himself from. That's how he's ultimately prepared a place for us. He's bought our pardon and purchased our forgiveness from all the wrongs we've ever done. All of our rebellion. All of our failures. All of our stumblings and fumblings and bumblings. Jesus there, the evening of this conversation, shed his perfect blood to atone for our sins. To pay the ransom price that would rescue us off of the auction block of slavery to sin and to death. And verse 3 tells us, if I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. If I'm going, I'm coming back. If I'm going, I'm coming back. The language in verses 2 and 3 is a little bit ambiguous. And D.A. Carson said, uh, the language is ambiguous so that we would have in mind multiple appearances of Jesus or multiple comings of Jesus. So in Acts chapter 1 verse 11, Jesus is ascending up to heaven after he'd been crucified and he rose from the dead and he hung out on the earth for 40 days, showing himself to be alive by many infallible proofs. And there on the Mount of Olives, Jesus ascends up into heaven and all the disciples are watching him go up and they're there staring at him. And then two angels appear and they say, what are you doing staring there? Don't you know that in the same manner he came up, he's going to come back. But right now you got to get to Jerusalem because there's work to be done. And so it is true that Jesus will come back in the clouds and he will come to the Mount of Olives to the same spot and set his feet up on the Mount of Olives to rule and to reign. And that advent is called the second coming of Jesus. In Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 you can read about that. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10 you can read about it. In Revelation 1 7 it talks about him coming with clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That's speaking of the second coming of Jesus, the second advent. But I believe that there's a coming of Jesus. We call it a coming of Jesus, but it is for Christians. The second coming, he's coming to judge the world in righteousness. But that there's a coming for Christians called the rapture of the church. And you read about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, as well as the Olivet Discourse of Matthew chapters 24 and 25. You can read about it in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But in this coming, he's coming for Christians. And instead of Jesus coming past the clouds and to set his feet on the Mount of Olives, where he will rule and reign, judging the unrighteous and ruling for a thousand years in a paradise on earth. Instead, the rapture of the church finds Jesus coming to the clouds and all of the saints meeting him in the clouds, being caught up 
In the Greek, it's the word harpazo. All right? Harpazo. Uh, I think you have to say it like in Italian. Harpazo. Um, but in the Latin, it's the word raptus. You know, many people critical of the rapture. That's okay. In my opinion, it's a non-essential thing. Um, but uh, I find biblical uh, evidence for it. You know, Billy Graham said, hey, prepare for, uh, for no rapture. But uh, man pray for a rapture and uh and man i pray for that rapture i want the lord to come soon and come quickly and to take his church before he pours his wrath out on the earth and uh and and so many critics of the rapture say well you don't find the word rapture in the bible and believe it or not you don't find a lot of words in the bible that we use like uh trinity you know or you don't find the word christmas morning you know something like that you know uh but you do actually find it in the latin uh, in First Thessalonians, where you find uh, that raptus, you know, and uh, the catching up. First Corinthians 15 says it's in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And uh, scientists say that there's the blink, the wink, and the twink. Okay? And then it's one one thousandth of, this is real stuff. You guys, everyone's Googling like this whole sermon. They're like, I don't know about that, that, or that. Put your smartphones down. I'm all the smartphone you need right now, okay? <laughs> all right. The blink, the wink, and the twink, okay? In one one thousandth of a second, we're going to be in the presence of the Lord. And First Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that the those who are saints who have gone before us, their bodies are going to be caught up first, be transformed, resurrected. It's the beginning of the first resurrection. It's an awesome moment. And then, after their bodies go, uh, then our bodies will go. Okay? And I'm so excited for that day. You know, my dad, he was a state champion wrestler three times in high school, wrestled for Washington State. He was so buff, so ripped, so my hero. But when he died when I was 19 years old, the effects of brain cancer had ravaged his body. Strokes, multiple strokes had paralyzed his left side, dropped his cheek, slurred his speech. And, uh, and I know that the hope is that in the rapture, though he's present with the Lord now, uh, his body is going to be resurrected, transformed into glory, and join him in, uh, in heaven. So it's an exciting moment. And so when we talk about uh, coming, the coming of the Lord, I believe that in a way, Jesus is talking here about, I'm going to come and I'm going to get you, Christians. I'm going to get you. Okay? Uh, but then also there's going to be, I'm going to come back with you. All right? I'm going to come with you and all the saints, the ten thousands of his saints. We're going to come back. I'm going to set my feet on the Mount of Olives. I'm going to do business with a Christ-rejecting world. And then I'm going to set up my kingdom. Okay? There's a whole lot to all that. We studied it in Revelation about a year ago. We wrapped that up. And so um, if you went uh, just a little bit, got some ringing in your ear out of all of that, it's okay. You're not alone. Okay. Now, the important thing about all of this, you guys, is the end of verse 3. That where I am, there you may be also. Now you might be hearing all this and you're like, oh my gosh, I've always wanted an apartment in the city. You know, <laughs> streets of gold, what? Riding unicorns, not so much. But you're thinking about all these things. I'm going to snowboard down the, the heavenly Everest. You know, I'm going to, I'm not going to be scared to finally parachute. You know, so I'm going to go do that and this and that and the other. And it's like, you know what? Sounds like hell to me if Jesus isn't there. All right? What makes heaven so heavenly? Jesus is there. The Lamb is the light. There's not even a sun in the new heaven, in the new earth. Why? Because the Lamb is there. And the Lamb is the light. He's everything we need. He's everything we wanted. And I believe that all the wonderful things that he has created in this earth for us to enjoy, that those are going to be there as well. But they will not be tainted by the idolatry in our heart that we so quickly de-God God and put everything else in this world above him. There's a lot of good stuff out here, right? Kids and kittens, right? Rainbows and gardens and jacked up truck, you know? Horses and steers and Wine and beers, you know, I don't know, whatever. But we take things that are good and we transpose them to be gods, and that's bad. 
And when we're in heaven, Jesus is going to be there in all of his glory and all of his splendor. And we will not be prone to the idolatry anymore. And we will enjoy it in the intention it was provided for. Anybody want to go to heaven? Oh, 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 you beat you me to my punchline. Man. Oh. All right. Do I tell the joke now? You're good. I don't know where you are. Who said that? All right. An old minister asked his congregation, anyone want to go to heaven? And everybody threw up their hands. Everybody except a small boy. What's the deal, kid? You don't want to go to heaven? Oh, I want to go, the little boy said. I just thought you were building up a group to go now. <laughs> so, wise man out there, whoever that was. Verse 4. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. <laughs> Classic disciples, right? We, we don't know where you're going, and how, how can we know the way, you know? It seems like they know nothing of the sort of where Jesus is going. Jesus says we know, but often we feel like Thomas as if we don't know. How can we know the way? They actually know the way. He's standing right in front of them. Couldn't do better with neon signs flashing at him saying, eat at Joe's, you know, like chink, 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 chink. How do we know the way? And this is what sets up this statement of Jesus that is beloved by everyone, memorized by most. When Jesus says to him, I am the way. I am the way of the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me or except through me. We're going to have the worship team come back up, guys. I've got the rest of the chapter studied for, but I don't want to rush through uh, verse 6. Justin, by the way, did a wonderful job last week. And uh, just, I listened to it uh, yesterday and just enjoyed it. And I was like, man, I just, there's so much in my heart for verse 6. And uh, and I believe the Lord has more for us in this little section. But as the worship team comes up and you can set your Bibles down While we may not expound upon it um, word by word, we are going to meditate upon it for a second. All that we've thought of today, all of the distress that we're going through, our nation is in distress, Oregon is in distress, Crick County is in distress. There's a water crisis like we haven't seen in 20 years, if not the last century. Man, there's there's viruses and plagues and cancers and diseases and businesses that have been shut down and are failing and economies that are hurting and marriages that are struggling, kids that are wayward, sin that you're struggling with that you just can't get a handle on, you just can't have victory over impatience and outbursts of wrath and you just tangibly feel our fallen condition, don't you? Man, even at church, it's just like, man, I can't say the right things. I'm always I'm in the discipleship group and I'm trying to answer the most simple question and I answer it wrong and the leader rebukes me and this and that, you know, and it's like, hey, Peter knows how that is. And it just seems like it's all falling down around you and it's all crumbling around you. And we just need to take heart today. We've got these statements by Jesus that are just, you could be like Peter Pan's mom, you know, and just kiss them. Just kiss John chapter 14, verse one today. Let not your heart be troubled, Rory. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Yes, I do. Believe also in me. Oh, Jesus, you have my heart. And I often pray like the man from Mark chapter 9. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I hate my unbelief, Lord. Just increase my faith like the disciples prayed. Lord, increase my faith. And the Lord would take our 
eyes and he would focus them towards eternity and say, in my father's house, there's plenty of room. I've got you in mind. I've got a mansion for you. If it wasn't so, why would I say this to you guys? Why would I put it in the Bible? You believe in God, you believe in me. You got to trust in me. I've gone to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm coming back. So be watching. Be watching, be coming, be calling out. Like John, even so, come Lord Jesus, come soon. That there, where I am, you may be also. We can just confess today, Lord, I've just been thinking of heaven as a place where I can just recreate and do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. I don't even really think about you being there. That's like a bride going on the honeymoon without the groom. Sounds pretty lame. Sounds to me like our hearts need to love Jesus a little bit more. Reading in a book yesterday that, man, our, our problems with sin and our habits and our just, it's a love for Jesus problem. We need to love Jesus more. And how do you do that? You cultivate love relationship. How do you love your wife more? How do you love your husband more? You cultivate that Cultivate that with Jesus. Get away with Jesus. Rise early with Jesus. Go on a walk with Jesus. Sing songs to Jesus. Write a song for Jesus. I don't write songs. You do. Just put words on a paper. Have you heard songs and poems out there? I'm convinced anyone can do it. Okay. Lord, I sort of wrote this for you. Roses are red. Oh, Lord, hear me out. You know, you know, just give it to him. Like, I've been thinking about you, Lord, and just let him put love in your heart. And pretty soon those things will be coming by, and you're like, I used to love that. Now it's ugly. It's ugly compared to Jesus. Lord, show me the way. I'm the way. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Ah, this is the life. If it ain't with him, it ain't the life. He's the life. Not one person will go to that giant New Jerusalem, 1,500 miles. I have a 1,500 mile, a 1,500 mile. No one will go there but through Jesus. And today, before we get to next week, we can just settle our hearts right now to say amen to that. Amen to that in this culture. Amen to that. In a world of progressive Christianity and postmodern culture where just, oh, there's no truth, there's no, rel- you know, truth is relative and it just doesn't, you know, and except for our truth, I mean, it's pretty true, but not yours, you know. And all of this stuff that's out there, we can just settle our hearts and he is the way, the truth, the life. There's no other way but through him. Let's pray today. As we close with just a simple chorus you are the way you are the truth you are the life just as we have our heads bowed and our eyes closed and a heart towards prayer maybe today is just a day that you need to just come back to Jesus or come to Jesus for the first time and you need to just come under his protective wings today Jesus says oh how I've longed to gather you under my arms like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings but you were not willing and maybe today you would just say to the Lord Lord you brought me here today to comfort me and to point me towards you and today I am willing Today I need my heart that's been troubled and shaken up to just come to you and let you speak comfort to me. You know, I don't know what that looks like for you. There's things in your life that are so specific that that nail needs to be hit on the head. And right now, I just pray for you that the Lord would hit that nail on the head. 
he would just speak comfort over you. Maybe it's that you have said you believe in God, but who's Jesus to you? And today you need to say, Lord, I, Jesus, I just, I thought you were just some sort of guru from the past. But I heard today that you're God, you're the creator, you know, be my name, you're coming back for me in the future. Sounds like I want to be on your side, Lord. And you would bow the knee to the Lordship of Jesus today in your life. Maybe for you today, it's just, you're just uncertain about your future. And Jesus just wants you to know that if you believe in him, there's a mansion with your name on it. Your name written in the Lamb's book of life. And just wrapping up here, just final verse. You came here today and for you... Jesus wasn't the way. He's a way. He's a way. A lot of good people follow Jesus. A lot of people follow a lot of stuff. And this is just kind of our culture. And this group of country folk, they kind of go gravitate towards Jesus. He's that way and just whatever. But just today, you, you hear this exclusivity of Jesus being the way. And that there is truth. And that he's the life. And today he's brought you here so that you would receive that today. And by receiving him and trusting him, all of the anguish and all of the pain and all of the torment, all of your guilty conscience can be made clean today. The poetry of the Psalms describes someone in sin as someone who swims in their bed at night and swims in the, on their couch and it tosses them to and fro. And maybe here today that describes you like you don't sleep well. You just, man, you lay your head on the pillow and you raise it up and you know you're guilty before the Lord. You eat anxious bread. Today, it could just be known your sins are forgiven. You can have a peaceful conscience. You can know where you're going. Let not your heart be troubled as you put your faith in Jesus. And so today, as we close this song, maybe it's the first time today that you would stand on your feet and say, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe you haven't declared it for a long time and you've been letting other ways and truths and lives creep in. And today you would just say, Lord, I'm coming back to you. That's the way, the truth, and the life. And maybe just as a seasoned saint today, you would just with great joy and comfort of heart sing with us again, Lord, you're, you're the way. No one else. Let's stand together if that's your heart. Close with this chorus. It's on the back of your song sheet.